0: Love and affection for God's holy infallible, and inerrant word remain standing, please, and turn with me to Jonah, chapter 3. You'll find the page numbers printed inside your bulletin, Jonah, chapter 3, as we continue in our study of this short but very powerful book. We have seen now Jonah from chapter 1 into chapter 2. Jonah, chapter 1, his spiritual decline... The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he did not do what the Lord had said. And we saw this spiritual decline as he tried to run away from the word, as he tried to run away from God himself. But then God, who is rich in mercy, abundant in grace and compassion, extended grace to our dear prophet, and he called him back through the bringing of a storm, through discipline, the bringing of a storm, and then also being swallowed by a big fish. Only then, to chapter 2, to experience Jonah's now renewal from his spiritual decline and running from the word of the Lord and running from the Lord himself, the Lord captures him with gentle, loving, compassionate discipline, and now he is renewed. And then today we get to chapter 3. And my friends, I wonder if you know what the context of chapter 3 is. This chapter is probably the most unfamiliar part of this short book. We all know about the big fish, we all know about the little stool and the fire that he builds inside the fish, the prayer that we talked about last week, and we know what we're going to talk about next week when he gets all mad at God and God brings a vine and a worm, but we're unfamiliar most often with chapter 3, and chapter 3 actually gives us this beautiful climax of the book. What is that climax? Well, let's give our full attention to the preaching of God's word and let us determine that by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, a visit requiring three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, and they put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let him give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we too will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion. And did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Father in heaven, we would pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would take your words and cause them to jump off the pages that are before us. And open our eyes to behold the beauty of your compassion, your long-suffering, your grace, and your mercy that you extended to Jonah, that you extended to the Ninevites, that you extend to us, and you promise to extend to our Nineveh, the neighbors right around us. Spur us on to love and good deeds, Father, by reminding us of that grace that you've given to us first and foremost. Do these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Well, if you are a golfer, you probably know what the word mulligan means. If you're not a golfer, let me just simply explain mulligan. A mulligan is a a do-over in golf. Now, a mulligan is not really in the rule books of the PGA, but each gentleman, as they step up onto the first tee, usually determines what kind of mulligans they're going to allow Some people allow one mulligan per 18 holes, one round of golf. Some people allow a mulligan on the front nine and a mulligan on the back nine. And then there's Howard Van Pelt who takes a mulligan on every hole. Mulligans are not in the rule book and yet they are determined by the individuals who are playing the game. It's much like the, uh, the Texan who went to Scotland because he heard about all the beautiful uh, golf courses over there and he stood up on one particular tee box on a par three and with all his might he, he swung at the ball and it took a great big uh, hack to the left, a splash right into the water. He took out another ball, he dropped it, and then he swung again, and right up on the green ka-plump, about ten feet from the pin, he turned to the Scottish guy, the caddy, and he said, In Texas, we call that a mulligan. The Scottish guy said, In Scotland, we call that laying three. (laughs) Not everybody is familiar with a mulligan, but it is simply this. It is a do-over, but with this difference... You get a do-over because you're going to hit the ball again and your intention is to hit it in the spot that you had originally intended to hit it in, but this time you are going to do it differently because you did not do that the first time. Jonah got a mulligan. Jonah got a mulligan and he hit it the second time in a different spot than he did the first time. I typically, when I'm playing golf, take my mulligan when I'm on a tee box, and I've been slowed down by the people in front of me. I can't hit yet, so I have to wait till they move on. And while I am waiting, the team behind me comes up, and they're sitting there in their cart just a few feet away when I tee my ball up. And I can see, I can sense their eyes just glaring at the back of my head as I tee this thing up. This is the only reason I am not on the PGA Tour is because I could not take the pressure of people watching me play golf. And I'll swing and I'll duff it. I'll top the thing. It won't even make it to the ladies' tees and there will be t- comments from all the other guys that I'm playing with. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to take my mulligan, but in the back of my heads, friends, I know that this mulligan is not going to do me any good at all because these guys are still watching. And I know I, I don't trust the mulligan be hit a different way but in the same spot I originally intended Jonah got a mulligan but Jonah took care of that mulligan and he hit it differently than he did the first time this is probably the most unfamiliar passage in this short book and what this passage is the climax that this passage gives to us is simply this that God pours out in abundance his compassion and his mercy and his grace to the point of salvation for those that are unbelievers. He uses the power of his word. The word of the Lord is spoken and using that word by the work of his spirit, he melts the hearts of individuals, he pierces the hearts of individuals to give them the certainty, the absolute certainty of the gospel And then because of that, seals to them that they are are believers, that they are saved now. And even gives mulligans from time to time that he might hit that again a second time in the right spot, applying the work of that spirit. Here's the question then. With this beautiful passage before us, do we believe that we... The saints of Redeemer Presbyterian have been given a mulligan and that this mulligan actually is going to work the second time. Do we believe in the power of the gospel, the power of the word to reach the neighbors around us to affect by only the work of the Spirit in their hearts and minds, salvation unto them? The most beautiful thing, friends, about this particular passage, listen, because here's grace. The most beautiful thing about this particular passage is this. The gospel is applied by the work of the Spirit and the Word of God to the prophet long before it comes to the ungodly of Nineveh. It's not until Jonah experiences the moving of the power of God's word. He believes now the power of God's word by the power of the Spirit who had not yet been indwelling in the saints yet because Pentecost Sunday had not yet come But he believes in the power of the Word. His heart has been pricked. It is like an arrow, sticking him straight in the heart, his own filth, his own sinfulness, or as he later says that the the king says, evil ways in violence in in verse verse 8. He understands that of himself. And salvation grips him by the work, the power of the Word and the power of the Spirit. And now and only now is he able to take his mulligan and hit it differently. Go to Nineveh to see the ungodly be given the gift of salvation. So I want to look at this passage this way. The revival first that takes care of Jonah before the revival that takes care of the people of Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 1, our passage. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's the same thing of chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Preach the good news. And in chapter 1, Jonah doesn't do it. In his spiritual decline, he runs away. But in chapter 3, we have something different. His mulligan now. He goes to the great city and he proclaims it. He obeys the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord now comes to Jonah. But listen, get this. Jonah has not progressed forward. He should have already been in Nineveh back in chapter 1, right? The only progression, the only movement that is taking place this second time is now Jonah experiences the word of the Lord in his heart differently than he did in chapter 1, verse 1. So the word of the Lord now pierces the heart of Jonah to see his own sinfulness, to see his own violence and filth and turn from that in order now to respond he has moved forward but not so much in progress in his action because he already should have been there but now the forward movement is in the change of his heart the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and then the word of the Lord is spoken by Jonah He makes his way, look at the passage there, in chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. He makes his way into Nineveh. Nineveh is a a very important city, and he begins to proclaim the good news. Jonah had already experienced, through the soft, gentle, gracious discipline that God gives him in chapter 2, inside the belly of that great fish... HE ALREADY EXPERIENCED HIS COMPASSION, THE COMPASSION AND GRACE AND MERCY OF GOD. HE SAW HIS SIN FOR WHAT IT WAS. AND SEEING THAT SIN FOR WHAT IT WAS, HE REALIZED THE COMPASSION AND GRACE THAT GOD HAD BESTOWED ON HIM TO GIVE HIM A DO-OVER. AND NOW HE DESIRED THAT GRACE AND MERCY AND COMPASSION TO BE EXTENDED TO THE NINEVITES, THE VERY PEOPLE THAT WERE RESPONSIBLE FOR TAKING ISRAEL INTO CAPTIVITY. But look what it says, verse 3, the end of verse 3. It's such an important city that a visit required three days. Now, don't, don't understand this to mean that it would take three days for someone to walk all the way throughout or around the city. That's not what it means. Here's the context of that particular day. An individual that was an important person or who had something to do in an important city met individuals at the city gate And they declared to the individuals their intent, what it was that they were coming into the city to do. And then they would make their way down to the Ramada Inn or Hotel 6 or whatever, and they would set up for the evening, and the individuals at the gate would then go to the political authorities, namely the king and his assistants, and say, so-and-so is in town, and we're needing to set up a, a, a time for them to meet with you on day number two. Day number two, then, this individual would appear before the king and would say, here is my intent, what I desire to do in your city. And the king would say, go, be well fed and pleased. And then on day three, the individual would arise, do the business that he said was his intent, and then exit the city and make his journey on to the next place. But look what Jonah does. Jonah comes in, verse four, on the first day, and he says... 40 days, and then Nineveh is going to be overturned. He does not follow protocol. Why? Because Jonah understands the urgency of the preaching of the word. The word of the Lord had come to Jonah. You got a mulligan, Jonah. Now the word of the Lord is communicated through Jonah. And on day one, he walks into the city and he begins to declare the favor, compassion, grace, and mercy of Yahweh, our loving God. Now we only have a summary of the account in chapter 3. We cannot understand this to mean that all they heard was 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And they said, oh my goodness, okay, let us fast and throw on some ashes and some sackcloth. No, 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 we only have a summary of the account. No doubt Jonah was giving his own story. I ran away from the word of the Lord. And I'm a prophet. That's my job. I'm supposed to speak for the Lord. And I ran away from the Lord. And he sent a violent storm. And I was sleeping in the belly of that boat. And then I got thrown overboard. And then I got swallowed up by a great big fish. And when I was swallowed up in that tight cramped spot, not that great big chasm open area, but I was in that filth and stench and all of that stuff, I recognized my sin. I saw my sin for what it was. No doubt Jonah is sharing, communicating his story. This gospel that I am preaching to you, Jonah is saying, is a gospel that has first been applied to me. So my friends, listen, by way of practical application for us, the word of the Lord comes to us first And impacts us, convicts us, changes us to turn from our filth and our foulness, our love for the darkness more than the light. And then and only then, when we recognize the compassion and the grace and the mercy that has been extended to us by this loving Heavenly Father, then and only then will the church be ready to go into her Nineveh and give this good news of the Lord God Almighty. The only impact of change that we can hope for in Craig Ranch, our Nineveh, right around us, is that this gospel has so gripped us and changed us. That we have seen the compassion, we have tasted of the well of grace, and it has empowered us through the work of the Spirit by the power of the Word to preach the Word to our neighbors around us. It first starts with Jonah, but then look, my friends, it flows out of Jonah. It's a conflagration. It can't be stopped. His, his, uh, his mulligan now becomes the very thing that he does. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. The word of the Lord now goes through Jonah to the Ninevites. And now look at the word of the Ninevites. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They believed God They declared a fast, all of them from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. The only reason that we have this kind of context description of the people of Nineveh is that they believed the power of the word. The power of the word through the prophet that was being proclaimed to them. And that word pierced their heart. They got a picture of who they really, really were. And then and only then did they turn in genuine Repentance. Revival took place in Nineveh because the word of the Lord through the prophet, by the power of the Spirit, was proclaimed to pierce the coldness of the hearts of individuals. What a difference in the picture of the revival that we claim in America, huh? The second week of Next month, we're going to have a revival service. And we're going to contain the work of the... We're going to call on the Spirit to come and be present with us. And we're going to contain the work of the Spirit so that every one of you are going to rededicate your life during that particular week. So bring your friends. we we, We think it's all about us. We're in this narcissistic culture where we think the universe, the center of the universe is right here and everything revolves around me. We think we have the power by our own speech to convert someone or the power to contain the spirit, to make the spirit convict someone. The power was in the word of the Lord. This, the word of the Lord, God speaking to his people to bring about genuine, heartfelt repentance, a hatred for their sin and a desire to turn from it, heaping ashes and dust on themselves, like our celebration of Ash Wednesday when we apply the ashes for our call to repent of our sin, not simply one day a week, but every single day, the repent. We've already had a confession of sin silently and corporately for that purpose. Nineveh believed God but look at it my friends it didn't stop there verse 6 when the news reached the king he hadn't been approached by the prophet yet now we're to the very heart of political authority and the word of the Lord captures him too he rose from his throne he took off his royal robes he put on sackcloth covered himself in ashes and in dust he hated his sin just like the city of Nineveh the word of, the Nineveh, or word of Nineveh was this a call of repentance. I see my sin for what it is. I hate it and I don't want it anymore. And they turned from it. They gave up their evil ways, verse 7, and their violence, and they turned to the Lord. And then look, the word of the Lord comes again at the very end, like bookends to the chapter. Here's the climax the conversion of the ungodly because of the conversion of the prophet who is faithful now with his mulligan to bring the word of the Lord a second time. And so we have the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and then we have the conclusion, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and he did not bring the destruction that he himself had threatened. Now, my friends, how are we supposed to take this? This ought to cause us pause, and I'm going to pause here for just a brief moment. I'm going to uh, cause us pause because we have to ask ourselves this question. Did God change his mind? Had God intended to bring destruction on the Ninevites, but yet now God changed his mind? That is absolutely not what this particular passage says, and I'm going to give you some proof text here in just a moment. But let me simply say this. God in His just judgment, God in His just judgment, God in His just judgment takes into consideration the actions of His children. Every passage in Scripture that gives us any indication that God had changed His mind always gives us a picture preceding of the action of the individual. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, where God looks down at Saul and says, it grieves me to know that I made Saul king. Is God saying, whoops, I made a mistake. I wish I had never made Saul king and now I don't have the power to make him king. No, because what happens later in verse 29 in verse 11, we read that it grieved God that He made King Saul or Saul king. But in chapter, the same chapter, verse 29, it says, "I am God who never lies nor changes His mind." But what had happened? Saul had changed his mind. Saul had turned from the Lord, and so God, in His just judgment, sees the action of. Saul now in opposition to the word of the Lord and he says it grieves him that he had made Saul king. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 18 beginning in verse 5. Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit, they refuse to return. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong passage. I'm reading chapter 8 instead of chapter 18. Let me get to 18. Chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel. Can I not do with you as a potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation is warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it disaster. And if the, at another, another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if they do evil in my sight and do not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I intended them to do so far. What is he saying? He is saying in his just judgment, he takes into consideration the actions of the individuals. It is not God who changes his mind. It is us who change, either in denying the Lord and running away from him, or seeing our sin for what it is and clinging to His compassion and His grace. There were two thieves that were crucified next to the Savior, one of them perishing even now in all eternity, and one of them is today and every day with our Savior in paradise because one believed and one did not. God has not changed His mind, my friends. He takes his just judgment into consideration in our actions. Nineveh was pierced in the coldness of their hearts at their own sin why because Jonah was pierced in his heart first at the coldness of his heart and his own sin and because compassion and grace and mercy the gospel had been working worked in Jonah he in turn then went to Nineveh gave them the word of the Lord the spirit working with the word brought them to the place of repentance and God looks around and says now I'm well pleased in salvation comes to Nineveh. Can you imagine what that would look like for us right here? If we really, if our hearts were really captured over the the filth and nastiness and ugliness of our sin and we hated it so much that we turned from it and then turning from it, we ran into our Nineveh and we gave them the word of the Lord, the very testimony of how God had worked that grace and mercy in us, salvation to the nation around us. That is the hope that God gives to us because of his compassion and mercy and because the power of the mulligan, power of the word, a second time to go and be faithful. All right, I can't end without one of those great, good uh, fire illustrations, right? When I was a fireman in Louisville, either the first in-engine company or at least always the second in-engine company had the sole responsibility of protecting the exposure. And all that meant was, if the primary structure was on fire and it was fully involved, then it was either the first company or the second company's responsibility, or maybe even sometimes both, to protect the exposures on one side or the other. And all we would do is open our fog nozzle and we would spray water on the, on the house that uh, was not burned or in between the two houses to cool down the su- superheated gases that would make their way and, and start the next house on fire if we didn't spray water in between the two. And here's my point. I wonder, friends, how many churches of the Lord Jesus Christ today are more about protecting the exposures by cooling down the interior walls of the place that's on fire with the gospel to keep it from spreading from any place beyond their own sanctuary. Are we opening our fog nozzles on the inside of this wall or these walls to keep ourselves contained right here on the inside instead of allowing the word of the Lord that pierces us and changes us to see our sin for what it is and the compassion and grace of our Father for what it is to be the conflagration that would set this whole place on fire? That's the power of the word of the Lord. We can't contain it, my friends. It's been worked in us. Now, by God's grace, and because he extends to us a mulligan, let us get into our Nineveh and preach the good news and watch him call individuals savingly to himself. Let's do it for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you that you have given us this gospel of grace. It's ours. We have a story. We have a story because you have visited us with your wonderful grace and mercy and compassion. And you now call us. It is your divine decree that we are to take this good news, your word, into our world, the world right around us, and tell them our story of how we have been recipients of a changed heart and they can be a recipient of that that same gospel of grace as well. Father, seal it to our hearts, please, today. Help us not seek to contain the work, the fire of your Holy Spirit, but let us be agents of it, using your word dependent upon that spirit to go into our world and preach the good news of the gospel for the glory of our compassionate, long-suffering, graceful, merciful Heavenly Father. Amen.